Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you again. I always enjoy being here at Connection Point. I am so appreciative of your open hearts and your kindness to me to make me feel like part of this family. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Colossians chapter 4 as we continue this series from Paul's letter to the Colossians. You know, the other night, my wife Candy and I heard a strange sound outside our bedroom window. It's a little unnerving, but our house is next to a woods, and so we figured it was some kind of animal. Well, we got through that night, and the next night, we heard the same sound again. It was a loud kind of a banging noise, so we finally went outside and looked, and we discovered that a rabbit had fallen into the window well outside our basement window. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of things like this, but the hole in the ground is about seven feet deep, and it's surrounded by concrete walls, and the rabbit could not get out. It was trying to jump, and it couldn't jump high enough to get out, so the sound we heard, it was leaping against the window and banging against the concrete walls. It had been doing this evidently for two days and two nights. Well, we wanted to get him out of there, but he had big claws, and so we did what any self-respecting family would do in 2018. We Googled... How do you get a rabbit out of a window well? <laughs> and to my surprise, maybe not to yours, there were lots of answers there. One person wrote, build a ramp, take some boards and build a ramp so that the rabbit can climb out on his own. But that seemed like an awful lot of trouble. Another suggested using a fishnet and reaching down and scooping him out. But I don't own a big fishnet. There were some smart aleck answers on Google like, throw some Energizer batteries down there. By now, we had given the rabbit a nickname. I called him Bob. And finally, I decided the only way to do it is just to get down in there and grab him. So I put on some gloves, and I got a cardboard box, and I climbed down into the window well. This is higher than I am in a little enclosure. Well, my presence freaked him out even more. So now he's bouncing around off the walls, and he's banging into me, and he bounced off the window and plopped right into the cardboard box. So I scooped up the box, lifted it up to my wife, Candy. She took him out, and in a few moments, Bob was hopping freely off into the woods. Now, why did I tell you that little story? Because here's the truth. I have something in common with that rabbit, and so do you. I know how it feels to be stuck. You know what I mean? Maybe you feel that way. When I was growing up on a farm, I would often drive tractors, and to my dad's chagrin, I had a knack for getting my tractor stuck in the mud. And dad would have to come out with a bigger tractor and pull me out. I hate being stuck, but sometimes I have been. How about you? Maybe you're stuck in a job you don't like. Or you're stuck in a class at school that's frustrating to you. Maybe you're stuck in an unhappy relationship. Or you're stuck with a bad habit or an addiction that you can't shake. Or a problem you cannot solve. Maybe you're stuck with credit card debt or a burdensome student loan to repay or you're stuck with a physical body that doesn't work right or you know how it feels to be stuck in a hospital bed when you'd rather be out living your life. Maybe you're stuck by yourself and you wish you were married or had more friends. Maybe you're stuck in a marriage where you promised for better or for worse but mostly it's been worse. Maybe you're stuck in a leadership role, but you can't quit because so many other people are relying on you. Maybe you even feel stuck in your relationship with God. 
you know, maybe things look good on the outside and other people don't realize that you're stuck. But deep down inside, you know that in your soul you are not free. I heard about a man who was really down and depressed, so he went to see a counselor. And the counselor advised, what you need is a good laugh. There's a really funny comedian in town. Go hear him and he'll cheer you up. But the man replied, I am that comedian. What should you do when you feel stuck? Colossians chapter 4 has some answers for us. The Apostle Paul wrote Colossians when he was in prison. You talk about being stuck. He was literally locked in chains with chains around his wrists, locked up and stuck in jail, chained to Roman guards. And his only crime was preaching the gospel of Christ. But he discovered an important principle. When your life stands still, God is still moving. When it feels like you are stuck and nothing's happening and you're not going anywhere, God is still at work in your life. I know how it feels to be stuck. There have been times when I have gotten news that froze me spiritually, that made time seem to stand still. There was the time when a doctor told my wife and me, your young son has cerebral palsy. There was the time earlier this year when my brother texted and said, our mom just had a stroke and she's not going to make it. There was a time when someone rushed into a business meeting I was in and told me that a friend of mine had suddenly collapsed and was in the hospital, and I got to the hospital and found out he was dying that morning. Some of us here right now this morning may be dealing with news that has taken your breath away, or you may be dealing with a long-term problem or situation that just makes you feel stuck. But when your life is standing still, God is still moving. Colossians chapter 4 mentions some, some steps that we can take. For one, when you feel stuck, get out of the boss's chair. Get out of the boss's chair. In chapter 4, verse 1, he introduces this idea because back at the end of Colossians chapter 3, the apostle Paul says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. So he's talking here to people who are at work, in this case, in the first century, it was slaves or servants. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, he addresses the people who are in charge at work to the bosses. And he says, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. And then notice at the end of verse 1, he says, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. You have a master in heaven. Now, this is good if you are a boss at work. If you have people who report to you, it's important to remember you're supposed to treat them right because you have a boss over you. The Lord is the boss with a capital B. He's in charge of your life. He is the master. That means I can't march into the Eli Lilly company and sit down in the CEO's chair. I'm not the boss there. I can't barge into the Oval Office in the White House and take charge. I'm not the boss of this country. I can't march down to Lucas Oil Stadium and take over as coach of the Colts. I have some ideas for them. <laughs> but I'm not the boss there. And you know what? I'm not the boss of my life either. When I've been stuck, it's been a helpful reminder to me to remember God is still in charge. I have a master in heaven. We're responsible for our decisions, but Christ ultimately is the authority, and he is not a tyrant, he is not a dictator, he is our friend, he is our comforter, and he always has our best interests at heart. 
Colossians 1.17 says, In him, in Christ, all things hold together. He's not in the business of blowing your life apart. He's in the business of gluing it together. We have a master in heaven who cares for us when we feel stuck. I heard about a man who fell into a pit, fell into a big hole in the ground, fell into a pit, and a self-righteous person came by and told him, you probably deserve to fall into that pit. A college professor noticed the man down in the hole, and he said, we should study why people fall into pits. An inspector came by and asked, did you get a permit to dig that pit? A reporter came by and said, that would make an interesting human interest story. I'm going to write a blog about the man in the pit. A lawyer came by and his suggestion was, you should sue whoever dug the pit. An optimist told the man, you know what? Being in a pit, it can be good for you, really. A pessimist said, you know, it's going to rain and it's going to get really muddy in there. It's going to get worse. A religious person came by and said, I'll pray that your time in the pit will enhance your spiritual growth. An IRS agent came by and said, if you stay there much longer, you're going to have to pay taxes on that pit. But then finally Jesus came by. And Jesus said, here, take my hand. And Jesus reached down and did what none of the others did. He lifted the man out of the pit. You may feel right now that you're in a deep hole and there is no way out and people are throwing all kinds of advice at you. Let me tell you, step one, get out of the boss's chair. Because Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth and he has your best interests at heart. He's reaching down to you. He came down from heaven to reach down to you and pull you out of the pit. Now here's something else. When you feel stuck, pray for an open door. Pray for an open door. Let me just be real blunt and ask you, if you feel stuck, have you spent much time praying about that situation? Have you devoted yourself to prayer? Notice in verse 2, Paul says, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. We take prayer much too lightly. We kind of pray now and then, pray as as a last resort, when it ought to be a first resort. Paul says, devote yourself to prayer because prayer does make a difference. But look how we treat it in our culture. In football, you know, they throw a long pass at the end of the game that probably has no chance of being caught. What do they call it? A Hail Mary. In in basketball, if you take a long, like a 50-foot shot from half court that you know probably isn't going to go in, you say, well, he threw up a prayer. We don't expect it to go in. We, We know once in a while it might, but we treat prayer like a last resort. You say, but Dave, I've prayed and it didn't do any good. Well, I understand your disappointment. I really do. But praying makes us better people even when we don't get what we ask for. Prayer isn't just about getting results. It's about building a relationship with God. Prayer isn't just to get an answer. Sometimes prayer is the answer because it connects our hearts with God. Sometimes we pray, and by faith, we are healed. And sometimes, by faith, we endure. And sometimes, we are given strength simply to persevere and to grow. Notice Paul says in verse 3, And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, 
for which I am in chains. I love the way he says he's proclaiming the mystery of Christ. There's a mystery about our relationship with God. There's a mystery about prayer. Last month, I had the opportunity to travel to the nation of Israel. I was filming lessons for a video series that will be out next year on the basic teachings of the Bible, basics of the Christian faith. I'm excited about that. And on a Sunday, I was at Qumran, the place where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, one of the great archaeological finds. I'm out there in the desert at Qumran, and I pulled out my cell phone, and I was able to text my wife Candy right back here in Indianapolis. It was amazing. We were sending pictures back and forth. I was texting her in real time. I thought, this is absolutely amazing. This is a mystery to me. I have no idea how I can communicate half a world away to somebody who loves me. But even more, I don't know how I can communicate with God. I just know that it's true. That when you devote yourself to prayer, there's somebody really listening. And you know what? I really am struck by the way Paul says, and pray for us too. Because Paul knew God. He was a great apostle. His faith was very strong. And yet he freely acknowledges to his Christian friends, I need your prayers. He says, pray for us too. You know what? People you encounter, they are saying that under their breath. Pray for us too. That couple you know who are struggling in their marriage, they may not say it out loud, but they're saying, pray, pray for us too. The people who drive you crazy at work or at school, you know, it's like they've got a sign on them that says, pray for us too. You parents and you grandparents, you know what? Your kids are saying, pray for us too. I have found as a dad and as a grandpa that prayer is one of my greatest weapons for fighting for my kids. I've got, now, I have three grown children and two sons-in-law, and I have three granddaughters, two who are teenagers, and one who's one and a half year old, my three little granddaughters, and, and, and I pray for them, and I found that it almost became simpler for me to pray when I realized everything I was praying for my kids starts with the letter S. I pray for their salvation, I pray for their safety, I pray for their schoolwork, I pray for their sexual purity, for their sports activities, for their social relationships, for their spouse. If they get married someday, I want them to marry somebody who loves Jesus and is strong in, in their faith. And I pray for their spiritual growth. And I realize, oh, everything I'm thinking about and praying about starts with S. So sometimes if I don't have much time, I just say, Lord, the S prayer. And he knows what I mean. So I'm praying for my kids and my grandkids, they're, they're saying, whether they're actually saying it out loud or not, they're saying, and pray for us too. Paul says in verse 4, when he's talking about the gospel, he said, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should, the gospel of Christ. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And that is a reminder to us to pray for Pastor John, to pray for everybody who teaches God's word. Prayers are like utility poles that hold up the power lines for our leaders. In fact, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, we read it a moment ago, he says, be devoted to prayer and be watchful and thankful as you pray. The Greek word translated watchful is Gregorio. It's where we get the name Greg. Or Gregory. We probably have some people in the room here named Greg. Well, your name comes from, there you go, <laughs> from the word for watchfulness. We all ought to be Gregories or Gregs because we've got to be alert and notice where God is at work in our lives. Even when we're waiting and it feels like nothing's moving, God is still moving. Because, see, here's the thing. When you pray, time waiting isn't time 
wasted. Time waiting in the presence of God is not time wasted. Moses felt like he was stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. But God was at work. Daniel was stuck in the lion's den for a very long and fearful night. But God was at work. John was exiled on the island of Patmos. But God brought good out of it all. Because with the Lord, time waiting isn't time wasted. When you feel stuck, pray for an open door. And here's another thing. When you feel stuck, how about this? Be an open door for someone else. Maybe you're in that situation, not for your own sake, but so you can open a door for somebody else. In fact, one way to get yourself unstuck is to serve other people who are stuck themselves. You can open a door for somebody else in their relationship with God. Paul says here in verse 5, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. You know, while I was in Israel, I stayed for three days and three nights in Bethlehem, the town where Jesus was born, and I had the privilege of staying with a Palestinian Christian family. The father, his name is Fadi, a young man in his 30s, is also the minister of a small church, and they meet in a church building that is also a home. It looks like this. Can we show you the picture of the, uh, this is their home and a church building in Bethlehem. It doesn't look very fancy, and it's not. It's a pretty rugged place, Bethlehem. And the first floor, they have a little church gathering place. The second floor is a guest place where we stayed, and the third floor is a family residence. Fatty was telling me how hard it is for Christians in Bethlehem, the town of Jesus' birth, but it's 85% Muslim. And the other 15% is very traditional, Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox, and it's a very small percentage that are evangelical Christians. And Fatty was explaining to me how hard it is. They're persecuted for their faith. It's a very hard thing to be a Christian in the town of Jesus' birth. You know, the little church that they have in this building, you know what it's called? House of Bread. You know why that's so neat? That's what Bethlehem, the word Bethlehem means, house of bread. It's so perfect because Jesus, who is the bread of life, was born in the town called the House of Bread. And so Fatty's little church, it's called the House of Bread, and they meet there, and it's tough there, but they are opening the door for other people. They do not complain about being stuck there. They are opening doors for others to hear about Jesus Christ there. And let me tell you, you are not too young to make the most of the opportunities, the open doors that God is providing for you and for others through you. I have a friend, his name is Bob, he's not related to the rabbit. <laughs> Bob, every year, right around this time in November, he sends me a letter, I'll probably get it in the next week or so, and it means a lot to me, because 17 years ago, I had the privilege of baptizing Bob into Christ. And for the last 17 years, he can, he's been growing in the Lord, growing as a Christian, and every year on the anniversary of his baptism, he sends me a letter just thanking me for being involved in his life and telling me how he's growing in the Lord. For 17 years, I have 17 of these letters. I'll get another one this, this month. But you know what's neat about that when I think about it? And he would say this if he were here. You know why Bob came to know Christ? Because one day he was sitting at home on a Sunday morning reading the paper and drinking coffee and his young son looked at him and said these words, Dad, why don't we go to church? And there was something about that young son's convicting question that cut him to the heart and he said I don't know 
they got up the next Sunday and went to church. And they've been going ever since. And he has been growing in the Lord. One young man who simply spoke a bold truth and asked a good question changed that man's life. You are not too young to make the most of your opportunities and to help open doors for the gospel with other people. And you know what? You're also not too old to find those opportunities and open doors for people. When I was there in Bethlehem, they were getting ready for supper one evening, and my host, Fatty, and I were out on the concrete kind of a porch outside his home, and they have olive trees growing on the other side of a wall right next to their house. And it's the season for the olive harvest, so olives were falling on their concrete there. And so he said, would you mind helping me pick up olives? So while we were talking, waiting for supper, you know, he had a bucket and we just started picking up olives. I've never done this before here in Indianapolis. And we're picking up olives and some of them are bright green and very young and tender. And then some of them were really old and wrinkled and dark. And and those I would just pick. And when I found those, I, I didn't put them in the bucket. I was just tossing them over the wall. And Fatty looked at me. He said, wait, what are you doing? I said, well, those are no good. They're old and wrinkled up, and I'm just throwing them away. He said, don't do that. Why? Because, he said, you wouldn't believe how much oil those still have in them. And so he took me downstairs and showed me a big pile of olives, green ones, wrinkled ones, all stages of them. They put them all together, and when they get enough of them, he explained, they take them all to the oil press, and they squash them all down. He said, we make the very best olive oil, and it's made out of the mixture of all the green ones and the old overripe ones and everything. But he said, don't you dare throw away those overripe ones. Those are some of the best ones. You wouldn't believe how much oil they still have in that. When I heard that, I said, Fadi, you just gave me a story that I'm going to tell. Because I came home, I told my wife, Candy, when I get really old and wrinkled... I want you to know I still got some juice left in me. (laughs) I've still got some oil left in me. I still want to produce something for the Lord. And this picture of the church being like a bunch of olives, some of us are going to overripe and all wrinkly, and some of us green and new, but we all, you mix us all together and some beautiful oil comes out of that. I love that picture. You are not too old to make the most of your opportunities. There's still some juice in you. Just last week, I had the privilege of baptizing a woman from Taiwan, and you know how she came to faith in Christ? She was raised as a Buddhist, but her neighbor, Jean, who is 82 years old, started reaching out to her, became friends. They would drink tea together. Jean started inviting her to church, and last Sunday, Yen Chen came to faith in Christ, and I baptized her because her friend in her 80s still has a lot of juice left in her. Paul says in verse 6, to all of us, regardless of our age, let your conversation always be full of grace. Don't you love that? Today, that would set you apart if you're a person known for talking with a lot of grace. It just sets you apart. If you thought, before you say something to somebody or you email or, or post something on social media, before you did that, you thought, what's the most gracious way I can say this? Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. I love that. I'm not a very good cook, but I do know a little bit of salt adds flavor, makes things better. Make your conversation seasoned with salt. Don't pour on so much salt that it's just, oh, it's too strong. Season it, sprinkle it with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Give thought to the way that you converse with people. 
you might be able to open a door for somebody else who feels stuck. And then when you feel stuck, here's another point from Colossians chapter 4. Draw strength from God's family. Draw strength from the family of God. You know, we tend to get stuck in life when we're all by ourselves, when we're disconnected from other people. In a couple of weeks, you might watch on TV the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City. It takes a whole team of people to hold those ropes and hold the balloons in place to keep them grounded. Back in the old days, they used to just use a few people doing that. And on windy days, it could get really, really dicey out there. So they have a whole bunch of people who are holding that balloon down and keeping it grounded. And you know what? It takes a lot of people to keep you grounded too and, and to keep me grounded. And you have that. In the church, the Apostle Paul was stuck in jail, but he had people around who were holding the ropes. Here in Colossians 4, he mentions several Christian friends who made his burdens easier to bear. It's easy when we read through a passage of scripture like this, just kind of skip over all these unfamiliar names. But let's take a minute with them. There's a guy named Tychicus, he says, who is a dear brother. What a beautiful name to be called. A, a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And then there's another guy named Onesimus our faithful and dear brother. Now you might remember this man because Onesimus was a runaway slave. We read about him in the little letter in the New Testament called Philemon. Onesimus, the word means useful, and Onesimus was a useful friend to Paul. And then I really like this next one in verse 10. He mentions my fellow prisoner, Aristarchus. You know why that strikes me? My fellow prisoner. Aristarchus was there in jail with Paul. Paul was not alone. Somebody was there who understood exactly what he was going through. And folks, that's what it's like in the church. You think you're all alone in that pit you're in? You're stuck and you're all by yourself? Guess what? There are lots of people who understand, who are your fellow prisoners. I, my wife and I have a small group that meets in our home every other Tuesday night. I feel like this next Tuesday when I get together with them, I'm going to tell them, you're all my fellow prisoners. <laughs> Because you guys know what I'm going through and I know some things about what you're going through. We're in this together. If you're struggling in your marriage, you're not alone in that hole. You're not alone in that pit. You look around Connection Point, there's lots of people who've gone through similar struggles. They are there to help you. They care about you. If you're struggling with an addiction, guess what? There are people here in our church family who are fellow prisoners. They're finding hope and joy and recovery and freedom in Jesus Christ. They want to help you. They understand what you're going through because they've been there themselves. They are your fellow prisoners. And then in verse 10, he mentions Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You know, this is just a little interesting thing. But there was a point where Paul and Mark and, and Barnabas weren't all getting along very well. It's interesting that Paul just mentioned them like they're all getting along real, real well here now because there was a point in one of Paul's missionary trips where Mark turned back and deserted them and left them hanging and Paul got really upset. And there was this family thing going on because he got upset with Mark because Mark deserted him. But Barnabas, his partner in ministry, was Mark's cousin. And so Paul and Barnabas got into a big disagreement. It was so sharp, according to the 15th chapter of Acts, that he, they had to go separate ways. But now they're reconciled. Paul's talking about Mark. Hey, he's my buddy. He's here. He's supporting me. They had worked things out. And then in verse 11, it mentions another guy. Jesus, who is called justice, sends greetings. I just have to pause and say, if that's your name, you got a lot to live up to. His name was Jesus. 
And his second name was Justice, which means just and righteous and all. Man, he had a lot to live up to. But if you wear the name Christian, you have a lot to live up to too. He's there with Paul. And then there's this guy in the next verse, verse 12, Epaphras, who he says is always wrestling in prayer for you. I like that because to me, prayer is not this easy, calm thing. It often feels like a wrestling match. It's work. It can be a fight. It can be difficult. But oh, how I need friends who will go to the mat for me in prayer, like Epaphras, and wrestle and fight for you in prayer. And then in verse 14, he mentions another person who was there with him. He says, my dear friend Luke, the doctor. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor. Now, let me just point out, this is kind of an interesting little detail. He already mentioned Mark, right? This is Luke. Paul is stuck in jail, but guess what? Two of the guys who are with him there are two authors of the Gospels, Mark and Luke. Don't you think they had some wonderful conversations about Jesus and the story of Jesus and how Jesus was there to help them and lift them up? You know what? If you're stuck, you got the Gospels too, but you got four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The story of Jesus can lift you up. And I also think it's interesting that Paul, we know in the Bible, he had a thorn in the flesh. He had some kind of a physical ailment. We don't know what it was, but it was something he prayed repeatedly and God wouldn't take it away. He just said, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul had a thorn in the flesh, something that really nagged at him, that made it physically uncomfortable for him. So what did God do? He said, well, you know what? Let me give you a doctor who will help you, who will take care of you, comfort you. And so his friend Luke, the doctor, was there with him. And then in verse 15, he mentions a woman named Nympha and the church in her house. This woman opened her home as a place where Christians could gather. Listen, what I get out of this is for somebody who was stuck, who was jailed, who was stuck, who was in a hole, who was stuck there in prison, Paul actually had a lot of people around to support him. And you do too. If you will notice them and avail yourself of them, people here at Connection Point want to help you. Draw strength from them. Get into a small group. You are not alone in the pit. There's one last thing. When you feel stuck, keep serving the Lord right where you are. Keep serving the Lord right where you are. Verse 17, right at the end of this book, it says, Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. Now, we don't know much about this character Archippus, but you know one thing that kind of makes me chuckle when I think about it? I'll bet this verse really got his attention. <laughs> He's sitting there, you know, and somebody's reading this letter from Paul aloud to the church. And maybe the sermon's getting a little long and his, his, his eyes are getting a little droopy and he's getting a little drowsy. And all of a sudden he hears his own name called out. Oh, by the way, tell Archippus. Whoa, his head must have jerked up. Because God's calling him out. And the message was, Archippus, complete the work that you have received in the Lord. You know, sometimes when I've been stuck and felt like I was stuck and I just wanted God to get me out of the situation I was in, sometimes I have to admit there was something God wanted me to learn or God, God wanted me to do before he opened the door and got me out of that. He's saying, Archippus, maybe saying this to you, stay right where God has placed you. Don't give up, but be faithful and complete the work that God has given you to do. I mentioned earlier that we learned when my son was one year old 
that he had cerebral palsy. I didn't even know what that was. When I was a young father, my son was born prematurely. He was very tiny. And the doctor who told us did not say it kindly. She just took us off to a side room and said, well, I don't know what the big deal is. Your son has cerebral palsy. And I said, what's that? And I have learned. Uh, you know, here at Connection Point, the initials CP stand for Connection Point. When I started coming over here uh, a couple of years ago to interact with the staff and to preach to you once in a while, I, I learned all oh, the initial. We all talk about CP, but for years in my family, CP meant cerebral palsy. <laughs> so my son, Matt, who's now a grown man, feels stuck with a body that isn't what he prefers. But I want to tell you that does not stop my son from having a meaningful life. It didn't stop him from graduating with honors from Cincinnati Christian University. It didn't stop him from going on to become a minister of the gospel of Christ. It didn't stop him from being a minister in a rough urban neighborhood where he lives and works with some of the poorest of the poor. And for the last several years, he has been conducting worship services for about a decade. Every Sunday night at a home for people with disabilities. He does that every Sunday night. Last Sunday, he preached at his church. Every week, he visits prisoners at the Hamilton County Justice Center and visits some of the toughest people who are in jail in this big city of Cincinnati. And he told me, Dad, you know, doing these Bible studies, one-on-one -on -one conversations with these men who are incarcerated, it's, it's a very fulfilling thing to me. And I said, Matt, that's really neat. I don't know that I could do that. He said, well what I feel called to do. And he, he, he hates to ever miss it. He's there every week with these guys. He said, I had to get a special jail pass, you know, in order to get in there, to get access to this part of the jail. And uh, he said, I had to go through all this, you know, uh, interviews and, and various things, references. But he said, now I've got a card and it gives me the access that I need, just like a lawyer gets or whatever to get into the innermost part of the jail. I said, Matt, that's cool. He said, but you know what, Dad? This is my son telling me this after all these years. He said, you know, Dad, what I think my jail pass really is? I said, what? He said, my CP. He said, I think my cerebral palsy is actually my jail pass because it gives me access to people he said, I've never been arrested. I've never been in jail. But when I come limping in, guys look at me and they know, I know how it feels to be stuck. I know how it feels to deal with something hard. And so they open up to me and I'm able to share Christ with them. And he asks them to read the gospels and then he comes back the next week and talks to them about what they're learning. He's led several of them to Christ. CP is his jail pass. Being stuck is the very place where he's called to serve. I don't know what you're dealing with, what kind of stuckness you have in your life, but I want to tell you this, and I know this for sure, you do not have to be stuck there forever. You will not be stuck there forever. Not in that job, not in that body, not in that problem, not in that loneliness and that frustration. Because somebody came down from heaven to lift you out of that pit. And he knows how it feels because nobody is more stuck than somebody who's on a cross. Jesus was stuck when he was crucified. Nails held his hands and feet to the cross. And after he died, then he was stuck in grave clothes, wrapped in strips of linen and packed with 75 pounds of spices, the Bible says. And then his dead body was stuck in a tomb. 
But three days later, he was alive again. And let me tell you, he is not stuck now. Nothing is holding him back. He is risen. He is free. He's alive. He's loose in the world. And he is here to set you free. Let's pray. Lord God, you came to set the captives free. That's why you sent your son Jesus to this earth. Thank you, God, for that amazing grace, for understanding when we feel stuck. God, help us to remember that you are the master, that you're the boss, to trust in your heart for us, your love for us. Help us, God, to be stronger as we wrestle in prayer, to be devoted to prayer, and to be committed to serving you right where we are until you open a new door to move us on. And help us, God, to realize that maybe you have us right where we are so we can open a door for somebody else to know you, somebody who's outside of Christ, to come in where it's warm by the fire. Thank you, God, for the price you paid to save us, we love you. We devote our lives to you, Lord. We invite you to free us, Lord, from those chains that have been binding us. And we pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior and Lord.